You can go ahead and take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of James, chapter 2. <clears throat> James, chapter 2. If you don't have a Bible, there are uh, wonderful little black hardbound Bibles like this that are scattered throughout the sanctuary underneath the seats. Uh, you can feel free to avail yourself of, um, of one of those. If you don't own a Bible, you're more than welcome to have that as our gift to you. We're in James chapter 2, and we are coming now to one of the most controversial sections in the book of James, really one of the most controversial sections in the entire Bible. <clears throat> That's no exaggeration, and I'll show you what I mean. So, for those of you who are Christians, you know that we are saved and we are made right with God, not according to how good we've been, but by what? By grace alone, through, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We have taught you well here. So, we get that. We teach that on a regular basis, and we love that truth. We, we love uh, what the Apostle Paul talks about in so many different places in the, in the Bible. So, for example, uh, we have… we don't have that Scripture, do we? All right, I'll read it to you. Go, go flip backwards, Ethan. Go ahead and flip backwards. There we go. That was a spoiler. You don't need to see that. All right, so Paul in Romans 3.28 says, "...for we hold that one is justified by faith." apart from works. Then, there it is, Galatians 2.16, Paul says, we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. Not by works, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. And put the next one up there, <clears throat> Romans 4.5, and the one who does not work, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Those are glorious truths that you and I, though sinners, can actually be justified before God, reconciled and brought into His family, forgiven of our sins, assured of a home in heaven when we die, exclusively on the grounds of faith in Jesus who paid the penalty for our sins and whose perfectly righteous life becomes credited to our spiritual account. And this is how an imperfect, unrighteous uh, sinner like me can stand before God and be treated by God as perfectly righteous as Jesus is, not as condemned criminals, which we've actually been. So we get all that, we love that, and we celebrate that every week at Harbin's Church. And then, like a freight train crashing to our, into our sanctuary this morning, comes James, and he's going to mess us up. James, the half-brother of Jesus, who writes, for example, you can put it up there, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Or, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Or, and in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works? Looks like we may have a problem. Do I have any volunteers to come up and preach this message for me? I didn't think so. 
So in that great cinematic classic, The Princess Bride, you've got one of my favorite characters, Vizzini, that great criminal mastermind, who on a regular basis would exclaim a certain word. Do you remember what that word was? Inconceivable. Wow, there's a lot of Princess Bride people in here. That's amazing. He says that, and then, and then one time he says that, another one of my favorite characters, Inigo Montoya, and some of you know where this is going, he says, you keep using that word. <laughs> I do not think it means what you think it means. Well, in James chapter 2, James keeps using this word justification, and there have been many. Uh, including the great Martin Luther, who have said back to James, you keep using that word, but I don't think it means what you think it means. You know, Martin Luther had a lot of problems with James. In fact, early in his career, he called the book an epistle of straw because it has nothing of the nature of the gospel in it. That's what he said. In fact, Luther, who had doubts about the validity of of the canonicity of the book of James... I think he slowly kind of was getting over that a little bit, because eventually he put James in his Bible, but it was like in the back. <laughs> it's like, I don't want people to see this. But he, but, he, but he wrote that, he said this, James is flatly against St. Paul and all the rest of Scripture in ascribing justification to works. Now, I love Luther. He's one of my heroes of the faith. Luther got so much right, but sometimes Luther got it dead wrong. There's something to be said for maybe having too much beer. Luther was was just a man. He, He was not infallible. Only the Bible is infallible. The Bible, which includes the book of James. And so we've got to deal with it. And my goal is to guide us through what James is saying and to demonstrate not a contradiction between two scriptures, Two, two writers, Paul and, and James, but, but really to show you a unity in the Scriptures, to show you that James and Paul are not toe-to-toe at odds with one another, as so many people say, uh, that, that they're uh, in mortal combat with each other, fighting over the nature of the gospel, where maybe you even have two different gospels with Paul in one corner with his boxing gloves of justification by faith, and James in the other corner, and on his gloves are written justification by works, and they are just duking it out. Instead, J- James and Paul have an identical gospel, but they are emphasizing two different aspects of the same thing. That's where I'm going with this. Probably the most practically relevant question in the universe is how can man be made right with God? And the answer, what we've we've read from Paul, is by faith, by belief in Jesus Christ. That's the most important question and answer in the universe. But a close second is the question, what is faith? In other words, you say, believe in Jesus, great. What does that even mean? What does that even look like? Does it look like anything? If real faith is present in a person's life, what should we expect to see? It's great to know that belief in Jesus saves, but it's better to to know even what that means. 
So let's dive in now to this very controversial passage of Scripture, which I think is an amazing passage of Scripture and, uh, and an encouraging aspect of Scripture as well. So it's uh, James chapter 2. Why don't you stand with me now in honor and reverence of the reading of the Word of the living God. James chapter 2, we're going to start at verse 14. And again, this is, yes, the word of James, but it is the word of James as he is inspired and carried along by the Holy Spirit of God. So let's have ears to hear what the Spirit has to say. Verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Pray with me. Father, this is your holy, inspired, infallible word. It is your message to us this morning. And so, Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would illuminate our understanding of the text, Uh, that the words of the text might be food for our souls, because man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So, Father, help us to feast this morning and learn and trust and believe. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So, while I love Luther... I think I find myself even more theologically aligned with the Prince of Preachers, Charles Spurgeon, who wisely wrote that whatever the statement of James may be, it could never have been his intention to contradict the gospel. It can never be possible that the Holy Spirit would say one thing in one place and another thing in another. Statements of Paul and James must be reconciled. And Spurgeon is, is right. We just can't sweep over or sweep under the rug parts of the Bible that we are uncomfortable with and just kind of just stay in the areas that, you know, make us feel good. It's, it's the whole counsel of God. It's all God's Word. We need to know what it says, and we need to know how it fits together so that we might have a better understanding of what God would have to say to us. James and Paul are not in a theological war duking it out face-to-face and toe-to-toe against each other on opposite sides. Instead, James and Paul are fighting. Yes, they are fighting, but they're not fighting toe-to-toe. They are fighting back-to-back against theological enemies coming in from different directions. 
They're both contending for the same gospel and the same truth, but often they are fighting against different opponents. Very often, Paul is fighting against those whom we might call Lionel the legalist. Lionel, and by the way, if there's anybody here named Lionel, I'm not talking about you. Lionel, I tried to pick like names that were less, you know, common. Anyway, Lionel believes that the way a sinner can be accepted by God, be forgiven by sins and go to heaven is by being really, really good, by doing lots of religious works and earning God's favor with the idea that if I can just do enough good, that's going to make up for anything bad that I've done, and my righteous acts will merit salvation for me. Right? Jesus is good, but I don't think He's good enough. I need to do something extra. I'm going to read my Bible all the time. I'm going to, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to help the needy. I'm going to be a faithful spouse, and we're going to add our works to Jesus' works, and maybe then we can make it to heaven. That's Lionel the legalist. And Paul is often swinging his theological boxing gloves at Lionel. He especially is doing it in passages like Galatians 2.16, where he says, by works of the law, no one will be justified. James is dealing with a different theological opponent, and we'll name him Alan the Antinomian. Any Alans in here? Okay, good. Uh, the word antinomian, uh, antinomian is a big theological word. It, it simply means against the law. And Alan says, hey, I, I've I've heard about Paul's teaching that we aren't justified by our works, and that's awesome. So that means that I can, how I live doesn't even matter. I can just believe in Jesus, maybe say a little prayer, live however I want to live, keep sinning as much as before, maybe even more now because I'm under grace, and I can still have assurance of forgiveness of sins in a home in heaven. That's a great deal. Sign me up. And James has pulled on his boxing gloves, and he's saying, no. That's just not true. And so here are Paul and James, and yes, they're in the ring together, and yes, they're fighting, but they're fighting on the same side as opponents of the gospel are rushing in from every side, seeking to pervert it and undermine it. Since the very beginning of the church, the gospel has been constantly under assault from different directions, and it is incumbent upon you and I as gospel people to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Not because we like theological cage matches, but because, as Paul says, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Because you and I love people, and we want to see people reconciled to God, we want to see people saved, that means we want to get the gospel right and help others to get it right too, and help folks to understand what it actually does mean to believe in something. Now, I'll give more attention to how Paul and James agree in a moment, but we'll turn our attention now to the text itself. That was just introduction. Now it's time for the sermon. Let's remember the context. James has been making the case that a believer is marked by a particular way of life that is in accordance with the Word of God. That's why James says in chapter 1, verse 22, be doers of the Word and not just hearers only in one ear, out the other, no impact on your life whatsoever. And he discusses how true religion manifests itself in various ways. We've, we've gone over these texts before, but, but, but talking about how we use our speech in our care for the needy, 
uh, in keeping ourselves unstained from the ways of, of a world that is in rebellion against God. In chapter 2, as we moved into chapter 2, we saw that James gives a, a pract- another practical example of Christian living with a warning against the sin of partiality, favoritism. Evidently, James was concerned that his readers were neglecting the poor, refusing to show mercy to the poor in favor of the rich. Not because they cared about the rich, but because they were thinking about what they could get from the rich. And then, James, moving on deeper into chapter 2, points his readers to the final judgment as both an encouragement to those who are living for God and as a warning to those who are not. And so he says in verse 12 of chapter 2, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, we took a closer look at those verses last week. You can go back online and and listen uh, if you missed the sermon on that. But James wants his readers to live not just in the here and now, but live with the final judgment in mind where we will all stand before God to give an account for our lives. And James has a concern that there are people in the churches he is writing to that they're professing to be Christians, they're professing to have faith in Jesus, and yet there is nothing in their practical lives to to support that profession. James is talking about the final judgment But there are people who are not worried about the final judgment because they're like, hey, I have faith. It doesn't matter how I live. I I believe. So I'm I'm cool. Now, this is relevant not just then. (laughs) It's very relevant today, isn't it? There are many, many people today, both outside and inside of churches, that are absolutely adamant that they are Christians, that they're going to heaven. And yet, at the same time, they are not living, like, living for Jesus whatsoever. Some of you know people like this. Some of you have friends like this. You may have somebody in your family who is like this. Oh, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian. And there's just absolutely nothing in their life that distinguishes them from the world. That's Alan the Antinomian. Maybe, maybe one of you this morning finds yourself in that camp. Well, James is going to teach us three helpful things about faith. And the first thing that he talks about is how workless faith is worthless and does not save. Verse 14, James responds to the Allens, the Allen, the antinomian types. And he says this in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works. Can that faith save him? In other words, you have a kind of faith that is workless. Is it any good? Will it be of any benefit to you on the last day and the final judgment when you stand before God, when you're judged according to the law of liberty? Can that faith save him? Now, in in first century Koine Greek, uh, the language that James was writing this in, there is a way to construct a question where the answer is automatically assumed to be no. And that's how James is writing this question. Uh, He's saying there is a kind of faith that does not save, which may rattle some of you who are so used to hearing over and over again simply that we are saved by faith, we are saved by faith, we are saved by faith. But James is alerting us to the fact that not any old faith will do. 
And like a good teacher, he gives us an illustration in verse 15. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you, one of you workless faith types, says to them, go in peace. That's a typical Jewish expression, shalom, be at at peace with God and the world. Be warm, be filled. And the idea there, I think, is may God warm you and fill you. If you say that, James says, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? What do your pious, warm platitudes mean for that poor brother or sister who is huddled out there in the cold and they don't know where their next meal is coming from? Maybe you've been in a situation like that where you have really needed help from somebody, anybody. And all people said was, man, that really stinks. Well, hope things get better for you. And they walk away. How does that make you feel? Well, among other things, you might be thinking, well, that was absolutely useless. It's just, it's just empty words, right? James says, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Just like words without action don't benefit the poor, so faith without works doesn't benefit you. Now, many have, under, have misunderstood what James is doing here. Do not think that the formula that James is setting up is faith plus works equals salvation. That would be dangerous and heretical. It's, it's what got Martin Luther all bent out of shape because he thought that that was going on. James is not saying that your good works need to be added to faith for you to get saved. My old... Um, Greek and hermeneutics professor from Southern Seminary, Dr. Robert Plummer, explains it this way in his commentary when he notes that as opposed to works being added to faith for salvation, James' explicit language is that faith either has or does not have works. Faith is inherently dead or alive. If it is alive, it contains works organically in itself and thus overflows with them in the visible world. The alternative is a dead faith that does not contain such works. So, James is not contrasting salvation by faith with salvation by works. Instead, Plummer writes, James is contrasting between living and dead faith. Not between a living faith that has work and a living faith that does not have work, There's no such thing as the the latter there. Faith, real faith, is like a seed. If a living seed is planted, what happens? It produces something. It produces a, a, a plant. It produces fruits. If a dead seed is planted, what does it produce? Nothing. You can say the dead seed is living all that you want. But the proof is in the pudding, right? Has anyone ever heard that expression, the proof is in the pudding? I'm just asking that because, like, the older I get, the more I say things like that, and my kids are like, what? What did you say? I've never heard that one before. Pudding? What does that got to do with this? All right, you old people, you know what I'm talking about. You can say that dead seed is living, but you saying it, you professing it, doesn't make it so. And in the same way, someone just saying they have faith 
doesn't make it so. Just saying you are a Christian doesn't make it so. Just saying you're a chicken doesn't make it so. Do you have the characteristics of a chicken? Well, maybe some of you, I don't think you do. Workless faith is worth less and does not save. The other thing James wants to teach us is that a faith that is merely orthodox does not save. Now, that's going to rattle some of you as well. James is continuing to talk about workless dead faith, but now he's zeroing in on people who may cloak themselves in correct doctrine, but still, practically, in their day-to-day lives, they have nothing to show for it. Verse 18, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. In other words, you say tomato, I say tomato. Six is one, half dozen is the other. There's another one of those weird sayings. You have faith and I have works. We're all the same, basically. We're all still Christians, right? Wrong. James says, verse 18, show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. In other words, how in the world are you going to show me your faith when there's no works going with them? How do you prove an invisible faith? Just saying you have faith is not admissible evidence in this conversation. Now, notice James uses this word show, show me your faith. I will show you my faith. I think this language, again, emphasizes the point that works are not being added to faith. Instead, works are just the natural overflow. Uh, They're already there. They're organically connected to genuine faith. This is reminiscent of Jesus' warning against false prophets and how to recognize them. He says in Matthew 7, a healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So what you really are, the kind of faith you have, whether it's the genuine living, saving faith of the real believer or whether it is the dead worthless faith of a false prophet will naturally show itself in the works or lack thereof in the person. So you can talk religious talk, and you can even affirm right doctrine, but you can't hide behind merely an orthodox statement of faith. Verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. Now remember, James is writing to a Jewish Christian audience. And so, this statement, you believe that God is one, that would have really resonated with them. You believe that God is one. That's a callback to the most important statement of faith in Jewish orthodoxy, the Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4, Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Akkad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And James is saying, yes, you believe that. You're a monotheist. You're not like those foolish polytheistic pagans. You believe in the one true God. You are affirming sound doctrine. I can examine your statement of faith, and I can check off that box, and I can check a lot of other boxes that are good and right. And James says, you do well. And I think James is being sarcastic when he says, you do well. It's not like, hey, you're doing well. I don't think he, I don't think, I mean, you can't retone but I think that's, that's what he's doing. I think he's like, you do well, in a sarcastic kind of way. Uh, you affirm sound doctrine, congratulations! That puts you in the same room as the devil. James says, verse 19, even the demons believe and shudder. 
what's the point? The point is that demons believe in sound doctrine. (laughs) They assent to the truth, but they aren't saved. And yet demons, who are the most wicked creatures in the universe, are monotheists to the core. You better believe they believe in one God. Demons have an orthodox Christology, right? You read through the Gospels when Jesus encounters demon-possessed people, the demons are they're crying out, you are the son of the living God. That's great theology. In fact, demons sometimes exhibit more sound orthodoxy than your typical mainline liberal Protestant church. The demons acknowledge who Jesus is. They acknowledge His power. They acknowledge His authority to judge them. And that's why James says they shudder. They tremble in fear. And the implication James is making is that you don't even do that. You don't tremble in fear when considering the final judgment as you hide behind your profession of faith and your correct doctrine all the while living in rebellion against God. You can't just live however you want and disregard God your whole life and then then stand before God on the day of judgment and say, hey God, I believe in Reformed theology, so we're cool, right? I'm down with the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. Let me in. Careful. Be careful. I can't tell you how many times I have shared the gospel with someone, I've witnessed to someone who insists they believe in Jesus and His crucifixion for sins and even in His resurrection from the dead, and yet they will not follow Jesus with their lives. And James is telling us that intellectual, mental assent alone is insufficient. It just puts you on a par with the demons. There are countless people who, when they were young, prayed a prayer, signed a card, maybe they had some sort of experience at at a church service, so they made a decision for Jesus, and yet nothing in their lives has changed. Folks, I'm not talking about perfection. You know that, right? You know that the Bible doesn't lead us to believe that once we become Christians, all of a sudden now we don't sin anymore. Sometimes the warfare against sin intensifies after we come to faith in Jesus Christ. As I like to say, it's not about perfection, it's a new direction. That's what happens when God saves you. And there are many people who profess faith in Jesus, and they're still going in the same old direction that they've always gone in. The Bible knows nothing of this. The Bible knows nothing of someone who receives Jesus as Savior and then lives for the next 50 years like nothing even happened. Faith, friends, actually does something. That's that's where James is going here. Faith actually works itself out in your life practically. Contrary to to being an extra add-on to faith, works are simply the organic, natural, outflowing, outworking of genuine faith. It is the fruit of faith produced by the Spirit in the life of a believer. And it's not just James who says this. So does James' supposed opponent, Paul. 
As opposed to fighting against James, a closer look at the Scriptures tells you that Paul is fighting with James on the same side as Paul writes in Galatians 5, 6, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Paul, like James, tells us faith works. It's not the only place Paul talks like this. Faith produces something. It produces works of love. What are the works of love? Well, they include all the things that James has been telling us about. Having an unbridled tongue, caring for the needy, showing mercy to the poor, keeping oneself unstained from the uh, the world, doing the Word and not just hearing it. Elsewhere, Jesus says, if you love me, you'll do what? You know? Obey. If you love me, you'll obey my commands. Faith produces loving works, and loving works can be summed up in obeying Jesus. If you say you don't obey Jesus, then you don't love Him. If you don't love Him, then you don't have faith in Him. If you don't have faith in Him, you're not saved. Because living faith doesn't just profess faith. It doesn't just affirm right doctrine. Yes, it does those things, but it does more. Faith actually works, which leads to my final point, that the the faith that saves works. Um, James has been spending time giving us examples of what dead faith is like. Now he moves on to examples of living faith, and he turns to Abraham in verse 21. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Wow, that can be jolting. If you're not used to seeing statements like that in the Bible... James says Abraham was justified by works. Justified by works, y'all. Did you even know that statement was in the Bible? (laughs) Are you crying out along with Vizzini? Inconceivable! I mean, we know that Paul, in Romans 4-2, explicitly says that Abraham was not justified by works. Martin Luther struggled so much with James because of statements like this. And when you consider Luther's context, it's understandable. Luther was in the height of his battles with the Roman Catholic Church. And one of the problems with the Catholic Church then and now was the Catholic doctrine of justification. Uh, it's, the, it's the old faith plus works equals salvation formula. And that was rampant in Luther's day. I mean, it's rampant now as well. And Luther was hypersensitive to that. And so, so Luther's like, no way. In fact, Luther was so passionate about this that in his translation of the Bible, in Romans 3.28, where Paul writes that we maintain a man is justified by faith apart from works, when Luther translates this, he takes a little liberty, and after it says justified by faith, he inserts the word alone. And, and that's not bad. That certainly captures the sense of what Paul was getting at in that Scripture. But what's up with James here? James brings up Abraham as a case in point, which is a great place to go if you want to talk about the nature of saving faith, especially to Jewish people, because Abraham is held up in the Bible as exemplary in faith. He's called the father of faith. 
James's Jewish audience would have had the utmost reverence and respect for Abraham. And if you've been tuning into our sermon series through Genesis, we've been talking a lot about Abraham. You remember that Abraham was given amazing promises by God that his infertile wife Sarah would have a son, that through that son would come many descendants, and through the offspring of Abraham, salvation and blessing would come to the whole world. And we who know the entire Bible story know that's ultimately fulfilled in Abraham's descendant, Jesus Christ. But after God gave Abraham the promise, Abraham waited a long time for this promise to be fulfilled through many trials and obstacles, including his own aging body. And finally, and possibly at an extremely old age, uh, you know, Paul writes that he's, his body's as good as dead. <laughs> Some of you might feel that way. After all that, and with an infertile wife, Isaac is born. It's amazing. But what's also amazing is that after several years, God then tells Abraham to take his son to Mount Moriah and kill him. Sacrifice him to God as a burnt offering. Now, you've got to imagine how difficult that would have been beyond just the normal excruciating difficulties of killing your own son. That's bad enough. But remember, this is the son of promise. All of Abraham's hopes for the future for salvation, for blessing, are bound up in Isaac, and now God says, sacrifice him. Really? And what's amazing is that Abraham responds in obedience. We learn in the the book of Hebrews that Abraham trusted God so much and trusted God's ability to fulfill his promises so much that Abraham is reasoning, well, if God is a God who keeps His promises, and, and, and they have to happen through Isaac, if I kill Isaac, I guess that means that God's going to raise Isaac from the dead. <laughs> That's faith. That is faith, guys. Um, so, he's, he's at Mount Moriah about to do this, and just when he's about to plunge the knife, the Lord stops Abraham and says, now I know that you fear God, that you love God, because you haven't even withheld your precious son from me. Now, not that God didn't actually know that Abraham loved God. It's not like God was sitting around for years saying, I wonder if he really loves me. And he's feeling insecure about it. That's not what's going on there. Uh, When he says, I know that you fear God, that you love God, that kind of language is God condescending himself to our level and using language that we can understand and relate to. God is essentially saying that Abraham's fear and love for God was confirmed in the offering up of his son to God. Uh, The love for God that Abraham already had in his heart prior to this event was made manifest and visible on that fateful day on Mount Moriah, which I think gives us a clue as to what James is talking about. Here comes another clue. Verse 22, James says, "'You see that faith was active along with his works.'" And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, by the way, as an aside, Catholic apologists love verse 24. They will argue that you Protestants say that a man is justified by God by faith alone. But the only time that faith alone appears in the whole Bible... The only time that those two words are put together in the whole Bible is here in James 2, and here James says someone is justified not by faith alone. But here's another important clue 
we need to consider what James means by the word justified. Because James keeps using this word. But I do not think he means what you think he means. And that's the rub. A word, I mean, this is true in English. (laughs) A word can have different shades of meaning depending on context. The Greek word translated justified appears elsewhere in the Bible, and it doesn't always mean what you think it means or what Paul means by it. When Paul uses the word justify, he is thinking of the one-time legal declaration of not guilty that God graciously bestows upon a sinner, upon the sinner's exercise of faith in God. But that word can also refer to something different, namely vindication or a demonstration of the reality of something. Here's an example, and this is in Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, where Jesus is responding to accusations that the Pharisees are throwing at Him. And He says, Jesus says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at Him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And then Jesus says, Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. Same word. Same word. And the word justified there obviously means vindication or publicly shown to be in the rights. In other words, as commentator Doug Moo says, the existence and value of wisdom in that verse that where Jesus is talking, the existence and value of wisdom are demonstrated in the actions that arise from it. That was Jesus' point in that Scripture, and that's what James is getting at in verse 22 when he says, you see that faith was active along with His works, and faith was completed by His works, and the Scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and was counted to him as righteousness. Now, James is quoting again, from Genesis. This time he's quoting from Genesis 15. That's the great chapter where we discover that a sinner can be counted as righteous when they believe, when they have faith apart from works. In fact, interestingly enough, Genesis 15 is the classic text that Paul relies on to prove his point in regards to justification by faith alone. It's interesting how James is going to the exact same text. And I I think what James is doing is he's saying that Abraham, in Genesis 15, believed God. He had faith in the promises of God, and through that faith, he was saved apart from any works. James, I think, would agree, I think, I know, James would agree with Paul there. But James is also saying, when you move ahead to Genesis 22, that that Abraham's actions in Genesis 22 vindicate or show or demonstrate the saving faith that he already possessed. So the actions of Genesis 22 are an outward manifestation of the faith that we're told about in Genesis 15. The faith that God counted to Abraham as righteousness. In fact, that's what the author of Hebrews is getting at when he says in Hebrews 11:17, by faith Abraham when he was tested, offered up Isaac. So, so the author of Hebrews is making a connection between um, uh, Abraham's faith and Abraham's works. It, it was a crowning moment in Abraham's life where the invisible faith that he had all along was made visible for all to see. One teacher explains it this way. Paul used the word justify 
to mean that God declares a man righteous in his sight at the beginning of his spiritual life or at the moment of his initial conversion. James uses the word justify to mean that a man demonstrates that he is righteous in God's sight subsequent to his initial conversion. I don't know if you, did you follow that? So, uh, Paul is using justi- justification or to justify as God's declaration of righteousness, not guilty, on the basis of faith. James is using it as, not as declaration, but as demonstration of Abraham's faith. And that's all that James is saying. He's not saying you're, you're, you're saved by doing a bunch of good works. He's not saying that the addition of your good works to faith earns or is credited to your salvation. He's simply saying faith works. Faith is living. Faith is active. If you have genuine faith, works are the natural outgrowth of that faith. To put it another way, going back to the seed analogy, faith is the root of your salvation and works are the fruit. If you don't have the fruit, it calls in the question the root. That's biblical. And I think that this can help us in regards to our personal evangelism. When we're calling people to believe in Christ, yes, we're calling people to believe the facts about the gospel. Absolutely, they've got to believe that to be saved. But also, we are calling people to actually follow after Jesus with their lives as well. And so, if, 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 if the person then says to you that, well, I, I believe all this stuff about Jesus rising from the dead, but I don't want to follow Jesus, do they really have faith in Jesus? If Jesus is saying, come, come and follow me, and, and the person's like, I'm not going that way. Yeah, I'll, I'll accept this whole cross business, and, and, and you can forgive me for, for sins, but I'm staying right over here, thank you very much. Really? Paul agrees with James that works are organically connected to real saving faith. In fact, Paul, in his opening salvo in the book of Romans, in in, in his great work on justification by faith alone, his great magnum opus, he barely gets five verses in when Paul talks about the obedience of faith. What he means is an obedience that flows from faith. Or consider Ephesians 2, Paul's tremendous statement of salvation by grace alone through faith alone, not by works. And then right after that, the ink is barely dry on what he has just written, when then he turns around and says, you're saved unto good works. You're saved for the purpose of good works, which God has prepared in advance for you to do. Now, don't forget, James has the final judgment in mind as he's writing this. That's what he's been warning his readers about. There are people in these churches that he's writing to that have, have, having a care about the final judgment. They are living however they want to in rebellion against God, and they are saying, that is, that's okay, because I have faith. I believe. But James says up in verse 12, speak and act as those who are going to be judged. And if you show no mercy, you won't be shown mercy. 
that there is this idea that when you stand before God, your works will be examined. Not that your good works save you, your faith does, but your good works are the evidence that you actually had saving faith. Not, again, that the believer is perfect. That's not the point. But if there's a real seed of faith, there's going to be at least a little bit of fruits. Now, again, this isn't unique to James. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, he will render, God will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. Paul elsewhere says we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus says you'll have to give an account for every word that you speak. In Matthew 25, Jesus paints a picture of the final judgment where everyone is judged according to their treatment of those in need, whom Jesus calls the least of these. You see, the Protestant reformers were right when they summarized the biblical teaching that justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. That's the whole point. John Calvin writes that the sum of what James says is that a dead faith cannot save, but a living faith, and that a living faith is a working faith, a doctrine taught by Paul as well as James. That's Calvin. And guess what? Even Martin Luther agrees. As Luther writes this in his preface to the book of Romans, this is Luther. What a living, creative, active, powerful thing is faith. It is impossible that faith ever stop doing good. Faith doesn't ask whether good works are to be done, but before it is asked, it has done them. Whoever doesn't do such works is without faith. Seriously? That's... <laughs> Martin! <laughs> that's, that's exactly what James is saying! And I'm confident, now that he's in heaven, Luther and James are reconciled. You know, after... after after God, the first person that Luther may have sought out was James. James, brother, I'm so sorry about that. I shouldn't have put it in the back of the Bible. Luther knows that all his angst and bluster was misplaced. Now, we're running, we're almost out of time here, so I really can't spend time on James's second example. Uh, this is Rahab. What I will say, though, is that it's very interesting. James uses the most respected man in the Jewish world, Abraham, and he uses a Gentile woman who had a very unrespectable life, Rahab. And yet, what James is doing is he's showing you that God saves all kinds of people, very different people. But one thing is the same, that with their faith comes outward deeds. And if you read in Joshua, book of Joshua, Rahab in her fear of God, exercises faith by putting her own life on the line and protecting God's people, and she's leaving her old life behind, and she becomes a part of Israel. Which leads to James's concluding remarks in verse 26, for as body from the Spirit, apart from the Spirit, is dead, so also faith, apart from works, is dead. Why? Because God never intended salvation to merely be an escape hatch from hell and a passport to heaven. Salvation is much more big and, law, and beautiful and grand than that. And, and James has already told you that, hasn't he? Like, if you go back to chapter 1 and verse 18, 
James says, of His own will, of God's own will, He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of His, creation, of his, of his creatures. And by the way, if anything demonstrates salvation by grace alone, it's that verse, verse 18 in chapter 1. James is saying, our, our good works did not save us. God of His own will brought us forth. He birthed us, so to speak, through His word. And what's the purpose of Him birthing us? that we should be a kind of first fruits of His creatures, that we might look like something very specific. The Apostle Paul agrees with James that God has saved us for a purpose. He has predestined us for salvation, Paul says in Romans 8, that we might be conformed to the image of Christ. God is not content with just sparing us from hell while we just remain slaves to sin, living for ourselves, hostile to God and hostile to one another. Instead, God saves us not just from hell, but from ourselves, that He might shape us into something more beautiful than we are, that we might more and more reflect the goodness and the righteousness of Jesus in our own lives, and that you and I might be like a mirror, reflecting the beauty of the glory of God to a world that desperately needs it, while freeing us at the same time from the misery and the bondage of sin. That's why James calls the law, earlier in this chapter, the law of liberty the law of freedom, because God in salvation frees us to truly become who we were destined to be. If you're here this morning as a believer already, you already know that even though faith works, your faith isn't perfect. And even the most mature of Christians know well of areas in their lives where they still struggle and fail. And what we learn from James is that our problem isn't a lack of willpower, and it isn't a lack of internal strength. It's a lack of faith. Any area of your life where you are disobedient means there is something about God, about His Word, about His promises, about His provision that you are not trusting. And the solution for you first is to remember that your hope for righteousness before God doesn't rest on your own righteousness, but on the righteousness of Christ and the blood He shed for all your sins, uh, all of your unbelief. Bank your hope on that, and then ask God to increase your faith. Like that man who came up to Jesus who said, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Got some unbelief here. I need your help with that. In addition to prayer, root your heart and your thinking again in God's Word through reading, receiving, meditating on, and memorizing it. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. And to the degree you are trusting God by faith is the degree that you are obedient to God because faith works. Others of you may be here this morning and you haven't been following Christ at all. And maybe you've professed faith in Jesus your whole life, but you really haven't sought to live for Jesus in any way. Your, your faith is not a living faith. It's a dead faith. It's the faith of demons. And maybe you're realizing that. The solution for you is to, by faith, receive what Jesus did on the cross, dying to pay the price for sins, receiving His perfect righteousness to cover your unrighteousness, and then to move forward in faith and following Jesus Christ with your life starting right now. 